0: Welcome to the Outdoor Wandering Podcast. This is our second episode. I'm Josh. And I'm Matt. And this week, uh, it's National Parks Week, so we're going to be diving into kind of the, the history of the national parks and that, and then some kind of current affairs um, that have to do with national parks and and uh, our public land and stuff. But first off, you you guys went to the beach this week, it looked like? Where exactly was that?
1: Yeah, we we went down to Westport and uh, hung out down at the beach and just kind of flew some kites and everything. And then we actually also spent a majority of the weekend exploring Capital Forest. It's a state park, but guys got got out into the woods and got some hiking done, found a nice little creek and had had some time out there.
0: That's pretty sweet. I'm uh I'm jealous that you guys got out into the woods. But we've been hanging out at the lake, and we've been able to hang out at the lake a couple of times a week um, while the little kids are in school. So, But uh, I didn't realize that you guys – I mean, is that the Capitol Forest and Olympia – or Olympic State Park? Is that pretty close to you guys, or is it kind of a drive? Uh, Westport's kind of a very, drive, isn't it? Yeah, Westport. Westport's about
1: – and our adventure um actually on the way to westport so the first day we went out and we explored around cedar creek up in capitol forest and then went out to westport the day after drove all the way through capitol forest um, because it's kind of if you head west towards the ocean you're going to hit mountains and hills and forest and drove through there on the way down to the ocean Um, yeah. And then day after that, went back into the forest and did some hiking. Beyond that, now we're just
0: home and exhausted. <laughs> it's, uh, actually the, the picture that you'd sent me of the, the beach that I put up on, on our Instagram, it's oh wanderings on Instagram. And that picture actually did, uh, pretty good better than kind of a lot of our pictures right now and I put the caption on it that not all public land is forest or mountains you know that the beaches like that are um, a lot of them are part of federal or state parks or part of national parks and and whatnot and I think generally when people think of like a national park obviously they think of you know probably the first thing that comes to mind is like Yosemite or Yellowstone and they don't think about kind of like the beach access and stuff yeah um
1: and sorry for looking it up is and, and we just drove down there we're lucky that we have it in our backyard i didn't even know the name until right now it looks like we were at twin harbors state park yeah. um so lovely beach access there um sandy beach which some some places you don't get access to a nice sandy beach well, not and then here there's, in Washington oh that's true and then camping right off and
0: around there so it's a lovely lovely spot So, yeah that's uh yeah you just don't normally think of uh the beaches as kind of public land or something it's just everybody says oh it's the beach but they don't really think about kind of how it's designated and stuff but which kind of gets into um i mean not that was a it's a state beach but we're here to talk about the national parks and the national park service which there aren't national parks that are beaches but i didn't think to uh segue in into any national parks (laughs) that are beaches from there but um so yeah if you guys didn't already know this week is national parks week um and if you're on social media or follow outdoor stuff you might have you know, seeing that, that, that hashtag of national parks week is trending as well as Yellowstone and, uh, Yosemite. Uh, I saw a news article. They're both trending, like in the top five topics or top 10 topics or whatever on Twitter today. So that's cool. But, um, that
1: is nice. I, and those ones, this national or er, sorry, Uh, Yellowstone or Yosemite is the big national parks they are the ones that are known but you did mention earlier and asked Olympic National Forest is just due north of me gorgeous gorgeous rainforest up there Um, hiking galore we've spent some time there's hot springs up there there's all of these pockets of national parks all over and it's not just these giant it's and they're gorgeous and they should be touristy places but in some cases that's what they are and so while it's nice that these ones are getting recognition this week it's also go visit some of these smaller ones
0: find these hidden gems out here yeah that's uh the olympic uh national forest and national state park or not state park the national park um that surrounds the olympic mountains as well it's I'd love to go back there, and I was actually thinking about going back there this fall for for hunting season um I heard that there's there's really good blacktail hunting out there, but I haven't been out there since i was i think I was fifteen or sixteen It's whenever I got right back from Germany, and uh I was still going to the the church groups and stuff back then. And that's when I was able to summit Mount Olympus over there, that the highest peak. And it was like, I think we took like four, three or four days to hike through the National Forest with everything on our backs up to the base of the mountain. And then we camped on the, the glacier for a night and then spent the next day kind of training and learning how to to deal with the ice and the snow and and going and then the next day we summited and then we hiked out in like a day and a half I think or it might have been a full day uh, we slept one more night on the glacier and then the next day we just beelined out which was all downhill from there but I haven't been back there There's since downhill
1: and you don't have to acclimate yourself slowly going up as well I would assume yeah. Um I would love to have an experience like that and I I feel bad now uh, telling Yellowstone that it's a touristy place. The times that I spent there are just it it is absolutely gorgeous and if you can visit go and visit. It is a it, it's 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 one of the best national parks that probably will be ever in existence in the country.
0: Well, that's I mean half the reason why the national parks and the national park service were created was uh to preserve them and and keep them the the way that they have always been natural but to keep them that way so people could come and experience it so I mean yeah it is absolutely it's a tourist thing and for to for the public to go through but it's our land and you know when they put when they uh designated them as national parks that was the whole purpose of it is to keep it the way it always was and so people could still for generations to come experience that natural landscape instead of you know just constantly being in developed so but speaking of yellowstone and that that brings us kind of into the, the history of national parks yellowstone national park was our first national park which was established on march 1st in 1872 so um the National Park Service wasn't created for what th- 44 years later but you know that was just the first step when when Congress said yep we're gonna completely preserve this land and the wildlife that lives in it and essentially make it uh, untouched by man you know to an extent obviously with but you know you're not allowed to do all sorts of stuff in there so um now today there's a lot of other and countries have adopted kind of our national park system. And there's over 1,200. And you
1: said that was 1892. 72. 1872. Yeah. And it's just been like you said. There, there's been roads built where there probably already were through. But I've been there, and it's it's untouched, and it is gorgeous. I can see absolutely why they would do it. It does make you curious. How, how different the landscape could be if we had more spots like this, even if we started now and just left it alone for the 120 years. Um, I would be all for designating some more national parks throughout. Um, with that, I, I do apologize about interrupting there, right. but continue ahead.
0: It's, well, it's that uh, I, I, there was a piece that you had just said that reminded me of this, and I I pulled it up in one of my tabs, but. Um, this guy named, uh, he's an artist named George Catlin, uh, in 1832, took a a trip to the the Dakotas and he was kind of the first person to suggest, um, doing something like a a national type park and and preserving that. There's a a quote saying by some great protecting policy of government in a magnificent, magnificent excuse me, a magnificent park, a nation's park containing man and beast and all the wilderness and freshness of their nature's beauty. And at least according to the National Park Service on their official website, he's kind of the guy that was credited that he was the first guy to to have an idea. And then, like I had mentioned in 1872 on March 1st, President Grant signed the bill designating 2.2 million acres of land as a public park public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people the section the second section of that bill gave the secretary of interior responsibility for the preservation from injury or spoilation of all timber mineral deposits natural curiosities and wonders within said park and their retention in their national natural condition so that's how it all started with with president current back then and then, um, I, I'm
1: sure you probably don't have it handy in front of you, but through reading and everything, how many roughly were there more national parks before the national park system kind of came into place? Uh, yeah,
0: or, actually, so, um, let's see, uh, Sequoia National Park uh, was founded in 1890, 1890. Uh, Mount Rainier National Park was founded in 1899 crater lake 1902 in yosemite in 1890 so i mean right in our own backyard with mount rainier that was 123 years ago in 1899 before the actual uh, national park service was even founded um and then in 1906 the antiquities act was passed which Gave the Department of Interior, which oversees all the national parks, um, gave them authority and uh, responsibility over um, things like the national monuments and the battlefields like we talked about last week. And so kind of molded them more into um, the national parks as opposed to, because before I think they were... Let's see, where is it? Yeah, they were supervised by the Department of War at that point, those monuments and uh, battlefields. So, I
1: just think, thanks for looking that up for me. As I, I can look into and see where they've made the selections of which ones to preserve and everything, because I do find that really interesting. I was thinking about that because you do have to preserve some, there will always be bits and pieces of history and places things that you do want to preserve you can't just be like grow over everything um but why why the ones other than obviously historical significance where i would argue every battle is obviously very significant here nor there thank you very much for looking that up because then i can look into see where that comes from um Back to Yellowstone and just kind of the size, what is, Yellowstone is our largest national national
0: park, correct? Um, it might be Yosemite. I'm and not, do we have like a top 10 large, largest national parks? Uh, I'm sure that you could probably find that, that, but I didn't look that up on what the the largest ones are now it looks like the channel islands national park which it looks like it's off the coast of los angeles is the largest national park at 390 square miles so that's i didn't know that um i did find that the national parks last week we talked about how Uh, essentially 28% of U S land is designated as, is federally in public land. Um, but today, currently there's over 400 national parks in the U S alone, and that covers 84 million acres to put that in perspective. There's only four U S states that have a lot larger land area than all those parks combined, which is Alaska, Texas, California and i can't think of what the fourth one is i didn't write that part down but so if you took all the the national parks and lumped them in they're going to be bigger than every state except four of them so that that is incredible um like i had mentioned that the department of interior is the is the governing body over all the national parks and then in 1916 the national park service was created to protect our parks and monuments um and so that's going to be your your uh park rangers and essentially the the national park law enforcement but not just the law enforcement aspect they're the anywhere from the, the people at the gift shops or the the counters or whatever, when you're going and you're buying your pass and and all that, but in 1916... I, they- and that's more just also to fund the service
1: and the upkeeps, I would think. Before that, it was kind of probably tended to slightly and then just left to grow, I would assume. Or yeah. at that point, is it also to... And kind of brings back to a little bit of... Con- or last weeks is the conservation of it is you need something there to protect these lands
0: yeah well i mean it it came down to um uh what's the word i'm looking for yeah essentially to, to protect them i mean they they were designated lands but especially back then there wasn't until the national park service was created there wasn't any sort of Boundary enforcement, yeah. I would assume, so, so
1: much, As, and even back then, hunting
0: over logging, I mean, constant. It yeah, so makes sense. They needed some sort of enforcement, um, you know, just to to make sure the intent of those those parks were were kept true. So. It didn't... And it, I I've heard, doesn't the
1: National Park Service they have one of the largest. Um, law enforcement
0: agencies I believe I would be surprised if that's true because I was about to go into kind of um actually how many the, right before you said that I was going to talk about how many people are employed there and the national park service only employs about 20,000 people currently and I think that was a 2019 statistic well
1: I'm way wrong
0: and so I mean if you in perspective
1: I want there to be a bunch of people out there protecting the parks, I suppose.
0: Yeah. To put that in perspective, Los Angeles Police Department has uh, almost 10,000 police officers. And the United States in general has, uh, I knew this a couple of months ago. (laughs) I want to say it's something like 400,000 police officers across the U.S., And so, yeah, the National Park Service employs about 20,000, and that's just double the size of LAPD, and that's even factoring, of those 20,000, it's, that's, they're not all law enforcement officers, so. Um, And, but also. That is
1: crazy to think about, because you also have to think they protect over in Washington, D.C., and, I mean, everywhere. So, resources have to be strained.
0: Um, I think over in Washington D.C., all, all those over. monuments. I, I'm pretty sure the Capitol Police have jurisdiction over the monuments over there. I, I'm pretty sure that's correct, but I'd have to look it up. And we are all, we are also getting way off topic. Yeah. <laughs> um. But also, I mean, this that I mean, twenty thousand people for. But eighty-four million acres just isn't that much. And in twenty nineteen, almost three hundred thousand people were actively volunteering in the parks, and that's not like that's not your boy scout troop that just goes and spends a day there picking up trash. That's, I mean, I'm sure, I am sure you know that does count. I, but, I apologize. Uh, what was that number? Three hundred thousand? Yeah, three hundred thousand. And so that's, I mean, that does that's that's not like the boy scout troop that's going and picking up trash for a couple hours on a Saturday. I mean, that does help, but the, you know, that's like 300 active or 300,000 active volunteers that are, you know, constantly essentially working in the parks, um, just giving their own time to it. So it is, it is—it it's a real heavily volunteer based kind of program, which I, I think is good. I mean, that's people giving back to their land. so. But that kind of yeah, just I was looking. There
1: is, and I'm sure um, some of these are much smaller, and some of them obviously are going to be much much larger. But there is 63 protected areas known as national parks that the National Park Service operates, with 20,000 employees. That's roughly only, and we'll round, so we'll say 325 employees per park and that includes maintaining then paid to maintain trails if you think of them in the forest maintain the beaches maintain roadways run the gift shops i mean it is phenomenal that we still have these places with honestly not a lot of resources going into it by the sounds of it at least human resources. I know like with that said though, we don't need tons of people there because hopefully it is really minimal impact. So the people that are there
0: should be there to take care of it and not much else. Yeah. I know the stuff like the, the trail, uh, you know, maintaining the trails and the campgrounds with them. That is all like largely volunteer stuff. Um, but yeah, and you, if the math you did with the 300 some odd people per park, and that's just, you know, breaking it down evenly. I would say that a place like, uh, Yellowstone or Yosemite, you know, the more famous ones probably have a lot more people than, uh, you know, one of the smaller ones, just because just the, the traffic from the public alone constitutes needing more people there. Um, yeah. so it, I mean, it, it relies just heavily, heavily on, on volunteers. Um, you know, some of the, the ideas of the, the benefits of these parks outside of recreation, um, you know, if you think, you know, climate change and, and all of that is obviously had been a hot topic over the past couple of decades. But these places are, you know, for lack of a better term, untouched by humans for the most part. And so just having those landscapes and that much land space in our country, you know, provides clean air, clean water, um, preserves wildlife habitats. And they're credited for being a, a big resource, especially in the western United States, of... You know, keeping pollution down and kind of recycling the the carbon dioxide that gets put out, and then producing the clean air and and whatnot.
1: Um, and I will say, especially after this past weekend, driving up into the forest and like over, you can smell the difference. I'm oh yeah, it's, it's amazing. You leave the city and
0: it it smells different. Oh yeah, it's just being out in the woods is awesome. I think just for your health in general, whether it's just the the air quality. I mean, you can taste the air quality and smell the air quality difference, and and just not for the the being. I mean, whenever I'm out in the woods like that, it, I physically feel better as well as mentally feel better. Um. So after the national parks,
1: um, you said they were created in 1916. That's when the Park Service, so the, you know the yeah the park service for everything yeah um i assume started small and is that just basically the funding for it
0: what well no uh, there's uh, a perfect segue because that's what i scrolled down to to talk about next in my notes uh the national parks get majority of their funding um well i don't know if it's a majority i didn't look up the actual what's written in the budget but they get a, a You know, the main source of funding is going to be from Congress and through different acts that presidents have done in the past. um, They uh, some of it's mandatory, no matter what, when the when the government's trying to do their budgeting and stuff like that, like no matter what, they have to give X amount of dollars to the national parks and the National Park Service. And then some of it can be allotted annually, um, just kind of at the will of at the will of congress but when you go into a park and you're paying the fees or you're buying your discover pass or um you're going a camp um stuff like that that goes directly to those parks and there's a lot of um private donations I, I, that happen you can you can donate has that
1: been since the inception has it always been the fees associated with the parks go to the parks? Or do we know if that's
0: legislation that's came later? Uh, No, that's kind of how... um, That's how it was that's created. A, yeah, that's kind of how it was designed. And I mean, off topic of, of the national parks, but I know I was explaining uh, a while ago, and I, it wasn't last week on the podcast. I think it was just bullshit about kind of like hunting licenses and where that, that money has to go into a certain spot. Otherwise, um, if the states don't do that, then it, it, it's like forced into that. So yeah. And then just kind of was always that way. And so, but I mean, back when it, it started, it was mainly just money from the federal government and then, you know, wealthy, uh, what's the fancy word for it that people just donate money, philanthropists. Um, Bougie rich people yeah, that, uh, <laughs> but that no, I it. and
1: I would have to assume probably back then, maybe some flanches, but really just outdoorsmen yeah. and probably even back then, hunters and people who
0: still wanted to preserve the land. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and uh, today, one of the cool things about um, helping out in national parks. Um, you can, you can donate, uh, to the national parks or to the national park service, and you can essentially donate just to like a broad scope. But if you also wanted to, like, you know, we live up here in, in, in Washington, if we wanted to specifically donate to the Mount Rainier National Park or, uh, the Olympic National Park, you can do that too. You can donate to a specific, uh, park as well which I think is is a pretty cool system that way you kind of know exactly where your money's going to, which can also help in, in times, especially if you can get some wealthy backers if, if one park starts going to the wayside or something, um, you know I, I'm not going to be able to change the course of that park, but maybe with enough uh, social campaigning or you know some of those, those wealthy people getting behind it. You know they can funnel a bunch of money into one specific spot and help maybe turn something around so but that's kind I, of
1: oh. i was gonna that brings i was gonna that's a whole discussion of why would this this program should be better funded if any there's 63 protected I think I pulled that up. Yeah. 63 protected areas known as national parks. If we can't fund those to fucking the moon, then we're doing something wrong. We should not be relying on somebody to be, to say, hey, I grew up next to the Olympic national forest. I've been here, done that. It's getting logged and everything we need help protecting it. I have to donate. I think I, as a society we should be taking care of this and from there that has to come from federal dollars yeah well <clears throat> <clears throat> and excuse me
0: <clears throat> the I think your your 53 number I'm pretty sure is is incorrect on uh, 63 63 because this is but coming that's from, just Wikipedia. This is coming from the National Park Service nps.gov website. Uh National Park System of the United States now comprises of more than 400 areas covering more than 84 million acres in 50 states, the District of Columbia, American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, Saipan and the Virgin Islands. So, according to to their website they they have um more than 400 areas. Okay.
1: So, but even still, I mean, 400 yeah. areas. If you throw even up, I don't know, 10 million a year, you're only spending 400 million. My math is late night math right now. <laughs> um, but we we should be able to afford that.
0: Yeah and all right,
1: all right. with with 20,000 employees we should be able to pay what it takes to take care of them and or hire more employees. Uh, but I mean, I, and it's that—that's just a here and there, but not really argument or battle or anything. It's just no. I I if if, if it comes down to it, it should not be
0: relying on donations from private people. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah if if each part got ten million bucks, uh, it'd be four billion dollars. But still, that's a that's a that's a hey, drop 4 of water billion in is... the bucket of the of our national budget. So. But even, you know, I I don't know what it costs. Like, I I don't know what the budget of Mount Rainier National Park is or should be. But, I mean, whatever it is, we should be able to afford it. So, which kind of, I mean, we've been talking about this for over a half hour, which I want to get into and just kind of wrap up my brief overview. And I lost it. Give me a second. Well, while you're bringing that up
1: here, I can let you know um, the first time in over 100 years, supposedly, I found this on the NPS.gov news release that they are releasing the California condor back into the Pacific Northwest. Um, The first time in 100 years since it's been here. And this bird, it's a 10-foot wingspan on the thing. And it, we we have only like in 1982 there was 23 of these birds left. Wow. I, I mean, so we we've we've done our number on them. Um, one thing it does kind of want me to ask though, because it says here that parts of the reasons that these things are getting killed. Is they're scavenger birds, big ass vultures, yeah. and they're eating everything. They're getting lead poisoning from buckshot, from animals being killed and left there. These birds are eating it and poisoning themselves or getting poisoned. What's well, when,
0: uh, is that that kind of contributed to their their downfall, or is that saying that that's a a current
1: um, um a current mixture issue. of both? I was gonna say it's they're saying it's a current issue and their downfall. Um, their biggest things that kill them it says is poisoning.
0: Because I mean, I, I've. You know, I just got into hunting last year and I want to, I want to be able to fact check what I'm about to say and I can't find the link right away. But when going through the It's driving me nuts. My notes cleared out as well. (laughs) When... uh, Just just a heads up for everybody. (laughs) Going through, at least here in Washington state, when I was taking the part of the, our, the hunters, uh, course you're only allowed to use certain types of ammo for hunting, um, migratory waterfowl and upland game, different types of birds and stuff like that, which has to be lead free type, um, type shot out of your shotgun. And so that's why I was asking if that was kind of a previous thing. And I don't know what other states are. Other states very well could still allow for lead shot, but I'm, I'm 99% sure, and I can figure it out once I find the the right pamphlet, but um, that you can't use the lead shot here in, in Washington anymore. Yeah, non-toxic shot requirements. Um, and this is coming from uh, the Department of Fish and Game here in Washington. So I wonder if maybe they eat it as well. If, you know, because you can target shoot with lead shot, that must be what it
1: like and thank you uh because i was reading over like i said i my notes cleared out um so i did have a few of that right that there was only 23 i believe left and we have now brought them back up into about the 400 range but it does say here that um it is endangered still and lead poisoning large largely caused by ingesting lead shot or fragments of lead bullets when feeding on carcasses is
0: listed as the species' primary threat. Okay, I guess that would make sense, ingesting it. Um, Because you can't use lead shot. uh, Because they they are vultures. I could.
1: um, And these things are huge. Like I said, 10 feet wingspan. These are some of the more ginormous birds that we have in existence. I think it's actually the largest land bird that doesn't fly over the ocean. Sure. Um, but, and, if you... but yeah, so they're reintroduced back up at the Sequoia National Park. And these are going to be just kind of an experimental release that aren't part of the endangered species. They obviously are. Um, but I don't know. They're more the sacrificial ones, I suppose, to make sure that they can survive there. And I just came across that, and I thought it was kind of a nice little story to bring at least a little bit of happiness. Things are coming back, and well, there's... It, it's amazing to be able to say that we've had 23 of these in the wild, and that was 1982. Over the
0: course of your your life, this species is making a comeback. Oh, that, that's that's awesome and with the with the right management it it has the potential to make a you know probably not a a full recovery to what their numbers were 200 years ago but a sustainable and that's what you want to see at least is a sustainable recovery where they can sustain their own populations without any sort of intervention um but i mean there's lots i mean the the wolf population is a, is a great example of a, a good success story, of uh, of bringing populations back. The bison is probably one of the biggest success stories of, of bringing populations back. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, the the old image of the the American prairie being they used to they used to estimate herd sizes of buffalo based off of how many days it would take for the buffalo to cross through an area that's how big these herds were of buffaloes that they would stretch for miles and miles, you know, and they would take days to go through an area. And, uh, we hunted them damn near to extinction, you know, back in the, you know, the 1800s and whatnot and through, you know, proper wildlife management and, and game management and conservation and, and, um, you know, a lot of hard work there's now sustainable Buffalo herds there in, in some areas that they are in the wild. You can, you can go in Alaska and you can draw a tag. Now it's very, very limited, but it's sustainable enough where if you're fortunate enough to draw a Buffalo tag, you can go hunt a Buffalo legally. And, um, to help manage those populations is not to just get rid of a buffalo but it's also to well it, you know, i was
1: gonna say but and also in the conservation and rebounding sense there's been wolves released back into i believe is yellowstone in the past few years mm-hmm. um that are making a good comeback that are helping with things like that and it's because we've i mean everybody has to know somewhere deep down inside that we have done a number on our natural environment around us and to see these success stories it does give hope that these programs are moving us and moving things in a in a good direction in a better direction and not not everything is always doom and gloom like sure we we have logged way too much and everything in my eyes but that there's there's hope there's the reintroduction of these species. There's the life, the the circle of life that keeps going forward, and we're not destroying all of it. Well,
0: that's it, it, the the wolf thing is pretty interesting, and I, I mean, we could, and I would like to um, do a whole episode on on the reintroduction of wolves into different areas. Um, you know, sometime in the near future, because. I think uh, there's a bit of. I think you and I might have some conflicting views on it, but that also kind of depends on, you know, if, if we do the research and then we start and, and see what kind of conclusions we we draw after really diving deep into it. But there's some, you know, I think there's some talk of reintroducing them into Colorado, and yeah,
1: because I mean, let's be honest. Truth be told, I don't know. I mean outside of yes there's wolves and there wasn't wolves there before and i don't know i don't want to see any species go extinct well, like yeah, I, I, so the, i'm stoked for that and no, and but does, i don't um, really know the
0: ramifications beyond all that yeah that's, and everybody i apologize about that noise um no i don't think there's anybody whether you're uh just an outdoorsman or a hunter or or just even your average citizen Nobody wants to see, you know, I'm not for the eradication of wolves, but I think when we're talking about wolves, and again, I I would like to do an episode on this by itself, but um, you got to have a good plan to go with it. You can't just be like, oh, you know, let's, there wasn't wolves here before. There was 200 years ago. And now let's reintroduce them without some sort of plan because they breed really fast. They are extremely good predators and you gotta think of things like the deer and elk populations over the past couple hundred years have evolved. Their defense mechanisms no longer worry about wolves. And so now you reintroduce them, they're not gonna have that I mean, they they have natural instincts against predators, but they're gonna be like, what the hell is that thing? And they're gonna get taken out quick. So And then as they, as they start breeding and populating and the population's growing, then what are we going to, are we going to be able to manage that wolf population or is, are they going to be always off limits from, you know, human, human intervention as far as, you know, a a hunting season or something like that. And are they going to turn into kind of what's going on in California with their cat problem with, uh. Uh, mountain lions now are just roaming the streets of some suburban neighborhoods because California's essentially said no no cat season whatsoever. And so now the cats down in California are completely uh fearless from humans essentially and they're, they're man hungry. Yeah. And you know, mountain, lion, no. mountain <laughs> I'm sure they're not man hungry. No, I mean even, they might be but you know, mountain lion attacks are are extremely extremely rare. But you know, they're, they're going through people's garbage and shit. And then what? It, yeah, the, you call I, And it a,
1: even even an attack is not. I mean, it, it's super rare, and we're not putting blame anywhere on anything. But you mix wildlife with human. Yeah. So my my point is, I, is I don't want another don't, don't lock me in for another year.
0: Yeah. It, <laughs> so let's not get cat scratch fever, except mountain lion fever. Yeah. No, it's, uh, my, my point is, is when you, when you talk about reintroducing these animals into places where they haven't lived in, in a long time, um, you just got to have a, a good management plan for once those numbers do start to thrive and start to grow, especially when it comes to predators so that that's kind of my point, and there's a lot more research we could do, and I would love to talk more about that. I think it's it's pretty interesting um yeah, just so long as they have the the a management plan to go along with it, but we're kind of getting away from the national parks in general and stuff. I know that that you had found some some other interesting stuff out over the week,
1: yeah, yeah, so to bring us a little bit back into the national park things um I was looking around for some current events and just kind of press releases things so i found this on nps.gov we got state transportation national park service officials mark a milestone in launching of self-driving shuttle now i just read the headline and that's kind of doesn't read out loud so well but big news there is they are testing a self-driving shuttle In the National Park System, um, which I read through and everything. And it is a passenger shuttle. Like, you can get on this thing. It's actually
0: free to get on. And it drives by itself. Is that going to be for, like, tours or, like, to and from campsites (laughs) or to and from hotels? Or does it say or is
1: it? Um, it, this is it's obviously very much in testing it goes back and forth um, from point A to point B let me see it did say in here uh, rides are free it does also only go 8 to 12 miles per hour let's see it goes from the Wright Brothers National Memorial to the first flight uh, bronze statue and back um, I have no idea how far that is, but basically point A to point B, fairly slowly,
0: by itself. Oh, so it's like and two points of interest, it sounds like, is what they're testing.
1: Yeah, but if you think of that in a grand scheme of a tour, get on an automated bus that goes 8 to 12 miles per hour. Point A to point B could be a 10-mile trip, and you're on there going on a tour guide for an hour yeah
0: i think i think um tesla needs to get on board with that and uh this is way way off topic but when we were down in vegas our ride back to the airport was in a tesla and just the the detection of like the cars around it was just ridiculously mind-blowing like if you saw on the on the the dashboard like it could distinguish a sedan from a truck from a van and it all showed up right there i mean it it essentially could tell you exactly the size of the vehicle that you're next to and the reason why i bring this up is because if the technology like tesla has could get on board with something like these self-driving shuttles then they could start probably implementing them in the national parks, that's more wildlife based, not just like these m- monuments or memorials, kind of a, a point A point B. Like you said, if it's like a, a tour around, uh, Yellowstone or Yosemite, they're going to need some sort of detection. If uh, a Buffalo standing in the middle of the road or an elk, that's yes. crossing the street or something like that.
1: Uh, and as, as much as I do want to hype it, that it just, goes by itself it is there is a customer service operator that can start and stop the vehicle if need be uh riding along with you oh, uh, right. so i mean that makes sense it, it's not co- yeah it, it's not really get into this box and good luck and i would assume even in the yellowstone and the guides there would be something for a while of at least disguised as a tour guide to point out these like you said you see a buffalo coming up on the side of the road i'm sure technology now would be able to say hey that's a whatever you programmed it to say it is and it could even announce it but i don't think people would really be comfortable with that quite yet
0: sure yeah i mean i, I think that's kind of the way technology's going though but that's pretty cool is it going to be a an electric vehicle or is it still going to be a, a gas vehicle I mean, just kind of being the national parks, it'd be nice if they could get the electric in there. And so they don't have the emissions and stuff. I would have to do some more research
1: because I don't want to say anything about it um, that I don't know. If it's not electric, I'm going to be hugely disappointed, though, because you are absolutely right. Like... Even going eight to twelve miles per hour, you would have to think it doesn't have that power, much powerful of an engine, and everything. It absolutely has to be for it to be to be used in these parks. I think that would be that's, we, we need it, especially around our our resources. We don't want the pollution. We were talking about that earlier. It smells different out there for a reason.
0: Yeah, well, I think. I mean, you. It sounded like they're testing it out at. Uh a place going from one monument to another. So it might be more of a, I don't want a shuttle type service. I don't Um, want to call it urban, but you know, not quite out in the wilderness, but definitely I wouldn't want some like, well, I'm sure there already are, but if we could cut out like these big diesel type buses and whatnot from, uh, the places that are the wilderness, like, Yellowstone and and whatnot so and then just one other small little
1: thing that I did find um interesting I didn't read a lot of information into it um I was just kind of perusing through really quickly but love the headline um the National Park Service acquires Old Slater Mill uh sounds like this kind of gorgeous building if the picture is accurate here um that's been been taken care of for a hundred years by this conservation group. Um, Finally, deals got done behind closed doors, shady deals, I don't know, money changing hand, things along those lines. But now it's part of the National Park Service. Uh, So it's just going to show that it is ever expanding. Like I said, I've always been wanting it. Why can't we expand this? Why can't we get more things protected? It is an ongoing thing um, that is always happening. This was as
0: soon as March 31st. So That's pretty cool. So it says Slater Mills, now a National Historic Site, which is part of the National Park Service. It was the first water-powered cotton spinning mill in North America to utilize the Arkwright arc system of cotton spinning, as developed by Richard Arkwright. Well, see there you
1: sweet. go. You you were much braver than me. Like, like I, I'm sitting here kind of looking over it as well. I I don't want to <laughs> read it and then I mean half the things I say is probably nonsense anyway, but if I'm trying to actually tell somebody I I don't know if any of this is true. So just take that <laughs> with a grain of salt for everybody too. This is everything that I am just reading on the internet. <laughs>
0: No, that's that's pretty sweet. It looks like it's in in Rhode Island. I wonder how that yes. even works. Yes. I don't know. Um
1: well it seems to be it was part of the Historical Society. Um and I believe that is also handed down federally and or probably nice. state by state. And then after a while they're like, Well, we don't want to take care of it anymore Like, like I said, I, I don't know how this works I just liked the story
0: yeah. Let's see, I just that. Oh, okay, this isn't in Washington This is also in The same and place And to the... some
1: time well that He's looking It includes the Including the 1793 Old Slater Mill the 1810 Wilkerson Mill, and the yep. 1758 uh, Sylvanus Brown House. Uh it also includes the transfer of approximately three acres of land surrounding the structures. It includes a raceway structure for the mills and Hogson's Rotary Park on the west bank of the Blackstone River.
0: That's pretty sweet. I'm, I'm all... Uh, let's expand our public lands whether it's in the form of a, a historical site or just a, a vast swath of wilderness, I'm all for it. Let's let's stop just building these concrete uh, landscapes.
1: And, and uh, I
0: agree. And possibly a
1: debate for a whole podcast of just looking into the possibilities because I know I mentioned it last week as well of what do we save and what don't we save because like i i'm looking it's gorgeous it's historical i want things like this around but there's also there's some spots that just don't have it it's it's not wild there yeah and i want everybody to experience that like when we were looking at some of these national park maps there, there's just places that are severely lacking. Yeah. And well, I, I don't know. I, I would like it to be more dispersed. But like I said, that's a discussion and a whole thing. Um, we should be celebrating the national
0: parks that yeah. we do have this week. Well, that's, I think, I mean, when you think of the grand scheme of things, as a nation, and not, you know, of every walk of life. It sounds like you know we have twenty eight percent of our land is public land. It's over a quarter and almost a third of all our land is some form of of public land. And to me, that seems fair. I, I think you know just about a third seems like kind of the the right number. But you are right that that it is disproportionately in the west. To the I west, mean, we're, we're yes. fortunate. To be able to be on the yeah, west I and just have gonna access, say, yeah. yeah I go but out. It would suck to be. I go out the my east,
1: back door and I have access to this gorgeousness, and then I see pictures of, I mean, places along the east coast and everything. And, and yes, there is some gorgeous country out there. Do not get me wrong; I have also seen some pictures of gorgeous, some gorgeous country, but I also. I don't think it necessarily compares to some of the, uh, but I, it's also preference. You're going to find sure. beauty in every different landscape that you're in, but some of the old, the older natural landscape that you go to, it just, it feels different
0: in my eyes. Sure. Yeah. So, well, I wanted to um, bring up this, this report that came out uh, this past week from the AmericanRivers.org. They came out with a list of uh, America's most endangered rivers of 2021. And the reason why I took it, it just so happened to, one, it was talked about on a podcast I listened to, The Meat Eater Podcast. Two, I happened to be driving home from work on Sunday morning and everything on sunday morning is like infomercial talk radio at six in the morning it seems like but it just so happened that the radio station i was on had somebody on that was talking about this exact thing and the snake rivers right in our backyard um essentially the thing with the snake river on why it's the number one most endangered rivers is because uh historically back if you go back Um, prior to the 1940s, I want to say when the first dam was built, the snake river had a population of salmon over 20 million, uh, running annually and spawning and making it now. And now in 2021, they're expecting the summer and winter runs of salmon to be about 8,000 so they're expecting essentially without any sort of uh, intervention that salmon are going to end up being essentially extinct from the snake river in the next couple of years without some sort of drastic change but there's four dams that are of concern on the snake river which provide hydroelectric power they provide Uh, water-based shipping for the grain industry through Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, which is huge where that's running through, Um, as well as uh, irrigation for all these grain farms and and crops. So, I mean, there's there's a huge hurdle to be able to overcome, to be able to restore the salmon populations because you have to get rid of the dams, but then you're going to have to find a way to deal with... Coax the salmon
1: back, even, you would think. I mean,
0: that that's a ginormous loss. Yeah, I mean, in tens of millions. And it's... The, the coaxing the salmon back, I mean, essentially, you, you like, already Would it can. be replaced with... Spawn, well, it would have to be replaced
1: with just spawned salmon. Um, farmed salmon.
0: Uh, You could, a bit. The natural salmon, I mean, right now you, you can't fish salmon on the Snake River. There's just not enough of them. And, and I don't think the Snake River is open for any sort of uh, fishing season um, to the public. But eventually, I mean, if they were to solve the problem, those 8,000 could turn into 50,000 in one successful season if they could all make it the ocean and back and then you know it could it could go from there but you gotta you know for the past 70 years 70 plus years the population in that area and the farmers have relied on that waterway and those dams for essentially their livelihood and so it's it's not just it's not as easy as just being able to stop having those dams and the lady did Speak about what would happen and it sounds like it's something is being introduced in the legislature that has uh, Clauses in it to be able to uh, On how they would irrigate the farms without the dams how they would provide the transportation uh, without using the waterway and uh, How they would replace the power, but I think the power is mostly putting up wind farms um, it sounded like, which could come with its own uh, problems. And I mean, you're saving the salmon at where, that point. Where's but... the pushback from this coming from?
1: Like, is it? I I would assume the owners of the dams
0: and, I, from my understanding, probably the, the farming community, the the, the thinking that everything's the, gonna the costs are gonna increase. That and just um, the, the general cost of it all from my understanding what she was saying on the on uh the interview i was listening to you can't just remove a dam essentially what would happen which actually makes makes this idea even sound better to me is you would have to dig around the sides of the dam and you you'd kind of be creating a bit of a new water ray waterway around the left you you alter right yep okay Um, the the actual structure of the dam would still be standing which as long as they're maintained and not a hundred percent abandoned you could see is like we could if we put the money into it and do that and then 10 years from now all right this solution didn't work the salmon are now extinct in the snake river well then they can talk about just expand the dam yeah or refilling in that land with the displaced soil that they took out from it so but i think that the pushback is is that one you got to solve the energy that they put out and if you do something like wind farms you're going to be trading or even solar farms you're going to be trading salmon population for migratory bird population um and and how that how drastically that's impacted i i don't know um but there is an impact there uh you're gonna be you're gonna have to go with either rail or trucking to move the grain which my understanding is vastly more expensive plus it consumes a lot more uh energy in and fossil fuels and stuff like that to to be able to move that stuff in that way whereas they could put it on a barge and and float it down and then they're going to have to find a way to get the water that uh to all the farms as opposed to being able to draw from these reservoirs that the dams create so it it it, i got the the feeling that i don't think it's it's going to happen i have a feeling that uh nothing's going to happen with this and the Snake River is going to lose its salmon, which is extremely unfortunate. I think, and it's... that
1: I mean that affects the native population up here. That affects a lot more. I mean, obviously, yeah. The the salmon going extinct is the tragedy here, but it does affect a lot more than just oh, there's no more salmon. Yeah, it's it, there's there's a lot to it, and I mean it, what... it is
0: it's really tragic. What she was talking about, and, and granted all the, the world's salmon population don't go to the Snake River, obviously. But, I mean, if you want to put it into perspective, during, um, you know, months at a time, uh, the orca population and stuff like that and the in, in, in the sound and out in the Pacific Ocean around Washington uh, feed almost exclusively on salmon. And so when you're talking about a whole river's population of salmon going extinct. You're talking about, uh, whale populations suffering from it because the food is diminishing. You're talking about, uh, bear populations that rely on that salmon. You're talking about, um, predatory bird populations that rely on that salmon. You're not just talking about, uh, anglers wishing that they could go fishing on the snake river. So it, it, you know, a whole river's ecosystem losing their, their salmon population definitely has, it's, has a lot more impact on the landscape and the wildlife than just their own. So I just wanted to talk about it that way. If um, people are interested in it and do listen to this, they can go to the uh, American org to find out more on and. Kind of how to get involved in it and and to look into it my personal opinion and my take on it though is it sounds like it's it's too too little too late to really be able to solve this problem and that's unfortunate
1: with, with that said i mean a little bit of doom and gloom to end it after i tried to bring some hope but there, there was 23 of those condors left condors and there are now at least a few hundred of them. So sure. it, it's not necessarily always it's not it's not too late. Something should be at least tried. We can't just give up and be like, oh no.
0: Yeah. Well it's, I'll be interested. I mean, I think um it'll be interesting to see on what happens with this uh this piece of legislation that they're they are going to put forth into the, into Congress with it. So we'll see what yeah, happens. Big, I was
1: going to say, it has to be a tipping, ticking time clock. That's for sure. So, well, I think I mean, that's, well, all I, got I was going to say, what, I think it was, else? I think we got distracted less. <laughs> and so I hope everybody enjoyed listening. Um, Happy national park weeks to everybody. Hopefully you guys all got to get out and enjoy a park next to you, whether it was a state park or a national park. I mean, even a city park, if you have to just get outside and go, go enjoy the outdoors that we do have, because I mean, if we take it for granted, then just like snake river is, things could disappear quite quickly. Um, But if we actually take care of it and keep an eye on it, like the condors, we can keep it around. So
0: definitely get out there and enjoy it. If you want to find out more about the National Park Service, you can go to nps.org. And if you want to find out how you can get involved um, through volunteering or donating to your national parks, uh, a great website for that is nationalparks.org, and that's from the National Park Foundation. Um, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash O Wanderings, on Instagram at instagram.com forward slash O Wanderings. And you can find our podcast on here on our website on anchor.fm, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week and uh we'll uh talk to you guys next week hopefully so take care